Hey, good evening, everybody. <clears throat> good to be here. Actually, I, I kind of connected the dots a little bit, Joel. We're, so we're uh, at, uh, at KCS, uh, where I, I get to help with chapels every other week. We're working through the Beatitudes right now from Matthew chapter 5. And the Beatitude that we camped on this past week was where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for, uh, for they shall see God. Uh, the Beatitudes, by the way, are, are, a, are a wonderful kind of this kind of big umbrella in terms of what does the kingdom look like and what type of people are a part of Christ's kingdom. And one of the wonderful things about Jesus is he's always kind of deconstructing cultural norms. Do you know what I mean? Like he just, he seems to step into the cultural ethos and then he just, he shifts the way we see and understand it. So, so even, you know, if you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, you know, what he's saying is, is he says, hey, the, these types of people are the blessed people. These are, these are the types of people that are a part of my kingdom. And they're so different when you look at it from what culture would see, say are the, are the blessed types of people. So we've been working through this uh, with, our, with our students at KCS. And the very first one, of course, was blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when you take a look at the, at the poor in spirit, you know, what he's talking about there are these people who understand that they are marginalized, that they don't really have much to offer, to bring to the table, um, to, um, to give them value or to give value to who they are. And he says, those people who are there, who have this sense of self that says, you know what, maybe I'm not quite as good as I, as I think I am, or other people look at them and say, man, I don't think you're quite as good as maybe what you need to be. Jesus says those people actually have an opportunity to experience the flourishing of the kingdom. So that word blessed are, are the poor in spirit. That, that word blessed pro- would be a better translation if we called it flourishing. This idea that they have an opportunity to access the good life of the kingdom in ways that some of the rest of us you know, may find a little more difficult. Now, interesting when he says poor in the spirit, you look in Luke, he says blessed are the poor. And he's, so he's speaking of this sense of, of awareness of spiritual power poverty, but also even those who have physical poverty. And what he's saying there, I think, is he's saying, hey, listen, you know, our goal isn't to become poor. That's not our goal. But what he's saying is there's some principles that people who are poor, poor in spirit or physically poor, that they have a type of access to a way of being that we should want to access, every one of us. So for those who are poor, you know, they realize that they actually need God. They're not distracted by a whole bunch of other things like we're distracted. And so there's a better chance that they have this deep awareness that they aren't self-sustaining, that they, they desperately need something beyond themselves. And so they're more prone to lean into the Father and experience and work in their life. Uh, when I was in Africa with Compassion, I remember we were in the Mathari Valley, one of the largest slums in the world, and, um, and, and Compassion had this ministry, this school that, that they developed in the middle of the slum, really small, uh, very, very small classrooms, lots of kids. But what shocked me when we went to the Mathari Valley was the type of joy that the children had. And I remember we were in the classroom at the beginning of the day, and so they were doing a prayer time, and this one young little girl began to pray, and she just said, thank you, God, that I am alive today. You are so good to me. Thank you. I'll be honest with you that I kind of take waking up in the morning and breathing, I take that a little for granted, okay? Like I just, I just kind of assume that's going to be the way this is going to go. I actually assume that when I get to the fridge, I'm going to have food that will sustain me through the day. When I turn on the tap, I have water. And for her, she goes, that's not something I assume. And so when I experience it, I go, oh man, God, you are amazing. And she had this vibrancy in her relationship with the father that I went, man, I long for that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are the poor. 
You know, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. They have access. You know, they're, they're not as distracted from access to the kingdom that sometimes we are. So, so we want to lean into that. So the one that we were looking at this, this past week is down a few where he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And so we were asking the question, what is this idea of the pure in heart? What does that mean to be pure in heart? In heart? And how do, we, how do we, again, lean into that so that we can actually see God and experience God in a deeper and a richer way, that there's a flourishing way of being if we can pursue this idea of being pure in heart? So, so what does that mean? Um, I, I used this illustration this week. I have a friend, his name is, I used to have a friend whose name was Brad, um, in my little town called Elkhorn that I grew up going to school. And it was funny because I was on Facebook last week just looking at, someone had been posting class pictures of their time in Elkhorn. Elkhorn, and I mentioned this before, Elkhorn is a town of 500. I had 10 people in my class, okay? So we were really, really small. So we were going through the pictures. It was kind of fun. And, I, and shocking, there was Brad. I, saw, I remember seeing Brad in the picture. I go, oh, yeah, I remember Brad. And that was about the time when I was, quote, unquote, Brad's friend. What I mean by Brad's, Brad's being Brad's friend is I enjoyed kind of spending some time with him. So we would come into town. My parents would like do shopping or business and I would have a couple of hours and I would go to Brad's place. He was right on the edge of our town and I would spend time with him. And the reason I spent time with him was because Brad had motorbikes. So he had two dirt bikes and we would go drive dirt bikes all the time. And I used to love it. I'd go over there, get on the dirt bikes, we'd have a great time. Well, my parents found out that I was always going to Brad's place and driving dirt bikes and I'm not sure why, but they said to me, they said, hey, Sid, we actually, um, you're not allowed to drive the dirt bikes anymore. So that's going to be out of bounds. And I was like, oh, that's so lame. And what was interesting is when I was no longer allowed to drive the dirt bikes, shockingly, I quit going to Brad's. In fact, I quit being his friend. And, and now looking back on it, I realized that, that I wasn't really into Brad in the first place, if I'm honest. I was just kind of into his stuff. My love or friendship for Brad wasn't actually a pure friendship. I was leveraging it. I was using it for for something else. And I think what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that, hey, when we begin to really love Jesus and when we lean into him, and there's no other agendas that are attached to that, we begin to remove those other agendas, it really becomes about Christ, that we begin to see God in a deep way and and experience a type of flourishing in terms of our journey with him that that is not always easy to access. And so we, we press into that. So then what we did is we shifted over to James chapter 2 because we asked the question, okay, how do we access this or what does this actually look like to be pure in heart? And in James chapter 2, uh, James is speaking of this idea of what is authentic or living faith. What does real faith look like? Now, people say that James is it's this really practical book, and it's almost like a practical commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. It seems like James, who is Jesus' brother, takes a look at the Sermon on the Mount and that kind of space right there, and then he says, okay, this is how it really practically works itself out. So in James chapter 2, he begins to practically talk about what is living faith. What does real and authentic faith look like? Now, the way that this kind of connects back into Matthew chapter 8 is because Jesus speaks a lot about faith in Matthew chapter 8. We see about five different circumstances in Matthew chapter 8 where all sorts of fascinating things are happening. And one of the first one is we have this Roman soldier, a centurion, come to Jesus and ask Jesus to do a miracle in his life. And Jesus processes with him. And then he looks at this Roman centurion who is really an enemy of the Israelites. And he says, this man has incredible faith. 
Like, I've never seen faith like this before. And again, he starts breaking kind of these cultural norms that if, if you were a religious leader of the time, you wouldn't look at the Romans and say, they have faith. You'd look at the Pharisees and the religious people, you'd say, they have faith. So he says, no, this is great faith. And then another story just a little later in Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus' disciples are on the boat with Jesus. The storm comes up and they get all panicked. And then Jesus looks at his disciples, his followers, And he says to them, oh, you have little faith. And he chastises them for their lack of faith. Okay, so so we have this connection here where Jesus begins to celebrate faith and he chastises a lack of faith. And it's a little bit confusing. And so then we go to James chapter two and we go, James, what does this mean? And I think what James does is he helps us understand a little bit what does authentic or living faith actually look like? When you look in James chapter 2, 14 to 16, 14 to 26, sorry, he says over and over again, speaking about what could, what is this authentic, living, saving faith? He says in verse 14, he says, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? Verse 17, he says, unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. He says in verse 20, how foolish, can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? His, and he said, his actions made his faith complete. Verse 24, he says, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. So he's speaking about what is this real and authentic faith that is actually a saving and alive faith. You know, um, I think one of the great gifts that God gives us sometimes is self-awareness. But if we're honest, self-awareness doesn't always come easy, does it? In fact, it's really hard for us. And if you're like me and you carry um, a few insecurities you're not always open to the journey of developing self-awareness. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'd rather just try to pretend to be okay with who I am and maybe pretend that I am okay. But one of the wonderful journeys in terms of our relationship with the Father is a willingness to open ourselves up to His Spirit-searching work. I mean, my propensity to, um, to fool myself is significant. And, um, and I think, you know, over the last while, as I've, as I've ex- experienced some of my friends who have made really bad decisions, and even as I've reflected on some of my own bad decisions, more and more I'm realizing that, that the way of faith, that the way of life well lived with the Father, I think that maybe the word that might define it most clearly for me is the way of humility, that, that maybe more than ever before, because of some of the cultural messages that are coming at us that tell us we should tell ourselves we're so great and we're so awesome and that's fantastic, that it's easy for us to kind of fool ourselves on this stuff. And I think, I think what we actually need to do, I think the way, of, the, the way of faith is the humble way that says, okay, Father, could you do a searching work in me? And if there's anything in me that's not of you, could you reveal that to me? And could you give me a heart that actually invites that kind of work in my life? And may I be open to your, not just searching work, but restoring work? This is why we love the word. We actually don't, you know, Timothy Keller says that we don't simply just search the word, but we actually ask God to use the word to search us, right? That as we come to the word, we'd say, Father, do this searching work in me so that I can be transformed, so that I can experience the way of your kingdom, the flourishing way, so that I can become the person you would have me to be, to experience depth and relationship with you, to be transformed, and to also be an agent of transformation. So this is kind of the disposition that we take as we come into James, and we go, okay, what does living faith look like? So there's four things that James says here when he speaks of what living faith looks like. The first thing when he talks about living faith is he says that living faith loves knowledge. It loves knowledge. 
but maybe not just knowledge. That maybe there needs to be something more to our journey than just knowledge. Now, let me be really clear. Um, We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, correct? That's what the scriptures say, that we should engage our faith with our minds, that we should read, we should understand, we should be good critical thinkers. We should, um, we should not just blindly allow simply our emotions to drive our faith journey. They're a part of our wonderful faith journey, yes, absolutely, but we should engage our mind. It's important for us to be good thinking people. But what James tells us here is that knowing doesn't always equal being. That, that there needs to be more to our faith than just knowing. Well, listen to what he says. He says, you say you have faith. This is verse 19. For you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Did you hear what he says there? This is a real challenge for me, I think, as I, as I work at, at the Christian school, because sometimes, you know, one of my fears is that sometimes within an, a biblical education, in an educational environment, um, even this was the case for me when I went to Bible college, is that sometimes we can equate our ability to have knowledge of the scriptures in the Christian way, our ability to get a good mark on a test when it comes to our Bible classes, as being the same as a deep faith. But what James does here is he actually challenges that. In fact, his words are a little bit shocking to us when we really look at them. I mean, listen to what he says. He says, he says you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. You have knowledge. You have an understanding of this God. By the way, he, he's, really, he's speaking about a theological knowledge when he says you believe there is one God. So in the culture, they believed in many different gods, but he says, you get it, this idea that there is only one, and that, and that one God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So there's some theological thoughtfulness that has gone on here. And then listen to what he says. He says, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. It's fascinating, you know, like they have, they have all this, the, 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 the demons themselves have a great knowledge of God. It's not that they don't know God. It's not that they don't believe that God exists. They do, and it terrifies them. They shudder is what it says here. And, and, and here's what I think what happens with us too. Sometimes our knowledge, through our knowledge, we become religious. We even become moral, but it may just be shuddering. That if there's some, not something more to our faith than just knowledge, then according to James, Our knowledge simply qualifies us to be the same as demons. That's about it. So there's something really strong here. So so we have to have knowledge. If we're going to follow Christ, there needs to be knowledge. We, We need to fight to understand Him. We need to grow to love Him with our mind. But it doesn't necessarily prove that that's everything. There has to be something more here. So what James is saying is that 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 faith is is dead. It's useless if it's only knowledge. So how do we know if our faith is a living faith? Well, living faith is a loving faith. It loves knowledge, but not just knowledge. It has to have something more. Okay, so what's the more? The second thing then he goes on is he, is he begins to speak about how our faith works itself out in our love for others. So listen to what he says. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, Have a good day, stay warm, and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? 
You know, it's really interesting. We know that um, our faith needs to have a works component to it. Absolutely, right? We get that. But works don't, like knowledge, they don't necessarily indicate love, right? Like, just because we have works, that doesn't necessarily indicate love. I often use the example of, of my relationship with Jen. Like, I can read a book that says I need to, you know, give Jen flowers. And if I go home after and I give Jen flowers, you know, and she's all excited, and then I say, well, to be honest with you, babe, I just read the book, so <laughs> told me I have to. Here you go. Enjoy. You know, she's not going to feel very loved in that journey because it's got to have something more than that. There needs to be, there needs to be a connection. There needs to be an emotional engagement that takes place place for our actions to also be a a reflection of love. There has to be more than just knowledge, more than just actions. There needs to be this deep emotional connection. And what James says in particular is that there needs to be a deep emotional connection to the marginalized, to the people who are in need, the people, the people who are, who the culture looks at and says, you don't quite, you don't actually quite fit here. You know, um, I asked myself the question, you know, why would he say that? Why would he, why would he say that real faith is seen in those who, who, when they see the marginalized, when they see the poor, when they see those who are cast out, it does something to their hearts? Why is it that James would be so serious about that? Well, here's, here's why I think it is. I think because at the core, people of living faith know that they too have been marginalized that they too are a, a poor in spirit, that, that apart from Christ, we are actually nothing. Do you hear that? In fact, this is the one thing I think more than anything else that actually be, um, is actually the foundation of true community amongst followers of Christ. Why it is that we can go to any part of the world and when we find people with authentic faith, there is this deep connection because the one thing that we have experienced that is perhaps different from anyone else is we have had to come to the place that apart from Christ, we have nothing. And it's only by the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross, which we celebrated last weekend through Easter, it's only because of that reality that we are actually brought into relationship with the Father. That apart from Christ, we are the marginalized. We are the ones left out. And there is absolutely nothing that we have that apart from Christ, we would be able to truly unauthentically enjoy. In fact, he says in Corinthians, when he's speaking to the church at Corinth, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Every good thing, every good position we have because Christ has said we can And apart from him, we are on the outs. We are not on the in. And it's people who have this deep understanding of their journey, this deep understanding that apart from Christ, we are the marginalized ones. They are the ones who have a hurt, have a deep heart for others who are marginalized as one. In fact, here's the truth. If you think you are saved by your works, you rarely have grace or love for those who are poor and marginalized. Because usually your disposition is, why don't you just get your act together and work it out? Look at me. This is what I've done. And then we realize that we're actually the marginalized ones. Because we're not saved by our works. We're saved by His grace. But it's this type of love that reveals that there is a living faith within us. So one of the questions, you know, that I'm asking myself as I continue to lean into what it looks like to have a faith that, that's growing is, is what is my heart, how is my heart towards those who are poor and needy and marginalized? Is it alive? 
towards those who are poor and needy, marginalized? Does it come from a position that apart from Christ, I realize that I am the one who is poor and needy and marginalized, that God's grace has transformed me? So it's renewing my heart for Christ, renewing my heart for others. So living faith, first of all, it loves knowledge, but not just knowledge. Second, living faith is a loving faith. It loves the marginalized. And then third, living faith deeply loves the Father, deeply loves God. So listen to what James says. He goes on and he says, Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God? By his actions, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. So understand what he's saying here. He's saying it's really interesting. He's looking at Abraham, and he's looking at all of what Abraham has done. And then it says about Abraham, essentially what he's saying is that to Abraham, it didn't really matter what he was doing, what he was called to do. What he wanted was he wanted God. That's actually what Abraham wanted. More than anything else, he just wanted God. He was willing to give up everything for the sake of experiencing God says he was even called the friend of God. He just, he just absolutely wanted to be with God. You know, um, Cole had his buddies over this weekend, so they were over last night. And you know, it's funny, when he's bringing his buddies over, there's, there's things that they're going to do, but the doing things aren't the most important things for Cole when his buddies come over. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can say to him, I can say, hey, Cole, what are you doing? My buddies are coming over. Awesome. How long are they here? I don't know. Oh, what are you guys going to do? I don't know. They're, they're coming over because, you see, he's not bringing his buddies over to, do, you know, to join him in something he enjoys doing. He's finding things to do so that he can be with his buddies. People who really love other people, they, 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 they create ways to engage those people. You know, when Jen and I first started dating, one of our first dates that we did was I took her to the Winnipeg Symphony. Now, I, I'll be honest, I hate the symphony, okay? Like, that's not my thing. But I thought to myself, like, I want to spend time with, with Jen. Uh, this would be an awesome thing to do. And so I took her, you know, I, I took her to the symphony because this would be an excuse for us to be together. Now, one of the things that was really interesting is I didn't tell Jen what we were doing. It was a big surprise date. And I remember as I was driving her to the symphony, I was going by, um, in, we were in Brandon, Manitoba at the time, I was going by the Keystone Center, and all of a sudden as we're driving by the Keystone Center, Jen begins to scream. She goes, I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you did this. And I was kind of looking at her. I'm going, did what? And as we drive by the Keystone Center, there a Blackhawk concert is happening that evening, right? And it's country music. Apparently, Jen really loved country music. I had no idea about that. And there was kind of this awkward pause when I looked at her, and I said, actually, babe, we're not going to Blackhawk. We're going to the symphony. And then I just started praying, oh, Lord, let her love me enough to enjoy being with me, even though I know she's going to hate the symphony. You know what I mean? Like, and so, you know, but there was this, it, within me was this desire to be with Jen, and I really didn't care what we were doing. I just wanted to be with her. People who have a living faith have this deep desire to be with God. And it doesn't really matter what they get from it. It doesn't really even matter what the proje- project is they're engaged in. They just go, God, if it's, your, if it's with you, I'm in, I'm okay. You know, I'm good. Wherever you call me, I'm good because you are there. I'm good. Whatever it is you have for me, I'm good because you are there. I'm good. My faith is about you. I want to be with you. I love being with you. You know, this is one of our challenges sometimes when it comes to our relationship with the Father, right? We love His gifts, and we should love His gifts. 
And his gifts are amazing. The gift of, of being invite, belonging in community, the gift of, of his presence. But sometimes there's, there's gifts of his that we get to experience that actually shift from simply being his gift to becoming our God, don't they? The gift of health, the gift of financial security. And we know that they've maybe shifted in their role in our lives from being simply a gift we're thankful to to actually becoming our God when we begin to lose those gifts. All of a sudden, the health begins to fade a little bit. Maybe the financial security isn't so present in the same way. Maybe relationships are challenged because of the positions we take in terms of our faith. And sometimes, if you're like me, one of the ways I respond is I go, Okay, God, like you, you owe me this. If you can't fix this for me, then I'm not so sure maybe I'm into you anymore. Like, this is what you owe me. And then maybe what that reveals is that we weren't so much into God anyways, we were just into his gifts. You know what I mean? And what James says to us is he says that a real living faith is a faith in God, not just his gifts. So whether his gifts are present or whether his gifts are not present, we're okay because God never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And so whatever our circumstance, even though the tears are real, in the midst of the moment, we have a type of peace and even a type of joy because those realities are rooted deep in the Father and he is with us. Through the power of his Holy Spirit, he is with us because his son Jesus Christ both died on the cross, but he rose from the grave. He is alive and he is with us and we love God, so we are good. Wherever he is or we are, wherever we are, he is. And because of that reality, we are good. Living faith loves God. Number one, living faith loves knowledge, but not just knowledge. Living faith is a loving faith that loves the marginalized. Our hearts resonate with those who are marginalized because we realize that apart from Christ, we too are the marginalized ones. There's nothing in our works that has earned our way to the Father. Instead, because of the Father working in our heart, we now do works that reflect the reality of His grace in our lives. So we're thankful for that. It's amazing. Number three, living faith is a loving faith. It loves God above and beyond all other things. Because God is with us, no matter what we lose, and the tears are real, but we say, hey, I'm okay because I have God. Nothing compares to him. And then finally, living faith loves courage. It's interesting how James ends. He says this, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. It's an interesting story that James reflects back on. Rahab was a Canaanite girl who was, who was living, or Canaanite lady who was living in Jericho. And when God called the Israelite nation into the promised land, into Canaan, they came to Jericho. It was one of the first cities they came to. And, and the Israelite spies came to, to take a look at the land that God had called them into. And uh, Rahab was there, and, and, and she met the spies. In fact, what she ended up doing was she actually hid the spies. When she met them, she believed that their God was God. And so she came to a place where she said, I'm willing to risk everything because I believe your God is the one and only God. So I'm in. Whatever it costs me, I'm in because I believe in your God. And I think this is true for us, that when we really have an alive faith, we are no longer afraid to lose the things that once were our gods. 
the good things that have become ultimate things. And we have this new courage to stand for the ways of the kingdom. And we don't, we don't stand in battle. We don't stand in violence. Christ dealt with the violence when he went to the cross. That's not how we stand, but we stand in love. We stand in radical love for others and for Christ and for the truth. We're gentle and we're respectful, but we're strong. We, we look at the hard moments and we say, because I love you, I won't go with you into this way of being because I know that this is destructive for you and destructive for others. And there might be a cost here, but I will choose to stand. And that's a wonderful sign of living faith when God begins to develop and grow our courage to become the men and women who are deeply rooted in their relationship with the Father, even in the midst of an antagonistic culture. You know, um, I think this is so important for us. I think that we're at this really kind of unique cultural moment. I was talking with my friend Carson Pugh, and Carson Pugh has worked with Trinity Western University over the last number of years. And last year in particular, he was working with them as they tried to present a case for their law school before the Supreme Court of Canada. And when he finished his time there, I... He came and I was talking with him just a couple of months ago and he said to me, he goes, you know what struck me from my time at the court case? I said, what was that? He said, the anger that people have towards the church in our country. And he said, we're in this really unique time where our values are, are seen as very different than cultural values. And I thought, you know, we kind of go through these seasons and maybe there's cycles in our culture. Like there was a time, I think, when the church was valued by culture and so we had a voice that could influence culture and that was wonderful. And then I think there was a time where the church was seen as irrelevant to culture. So we tried to show ourselves as relevant, put on nice lights and got hip environments and we said, look at us, we're really relevant, listen to us, we have something to offer. But we're at a time where I don't think the church is no longer valued necessarily, and nor is it seen as irrelevant. In some ways, it's actually seen as dangerous. And so the question I'm starting to ask myself is the type of faith that we as the church have, is it rooted in such a way that it can stand in the midst of a cultural wave that seems to be against us, and not simply stand, but could we actually bring a new cultural good into this environment? Could we actually stand in such a way for truth and stand in such a way for the marginalized and stand in such a way for the sake of the kingdom that we could actually be boldly present within our communities and our environments, even when we are seen as dangerous, even when we are seen as as different? Could we, by God's grace, stand with gentleness and respect and radical love because of our faith in Jesus Christ that we could actually engage in cultural shifts and change? Do we have that type of rooting? But this is what God has called us to. And so this is the type of journey that I think we need to be on. I really believe that the most important attribute of of faith today is the attribute of humility. That we have this disposition that says, Father, I am open to your working in my life. And if there are things in me that you see are not of you, could you reveal that so that I could confess and repent and be transformed by you? And that humility would be revealed not just in terms of our personal relationship with Christ, but also in terms of our relationship with each other as part of the body of Christ. That together we would invite each other to speak into our lives. That the Spirit would use us to be people who are drawing each other into deeper journeys with the Father. 
And one of the ways that we would do that is we would just continue to say, Lord, test my faith. Show me the areas that I need to change. Help me to lean into what it looks like to pursue a pure heart before you. That we would ask the Lord to grow in us a living faith, a faith that that has knowledge but not just knowledge, that there would be something more than that. A living faith that would deeply love the marginalized, that our hearts would resonate with those who are on the outs and we would move towards them in sacrificial love and care because we would know that apart from Christ, we too are the marginalized. A a living faith that would love the Father, that that we would love God so much that even if it costs us much, we're okay because we have God and there's Nothing that compares to him, that our eyes would be awakened to the beauty of Jesus Christ and his work. And then finally, that we would have a, a living faith that would result in much courage. That in the environments that he has placed us, that we would not shrink, but we would boldly and yet gently and respectfully step into the culture we find ourselves and bring a new kingdom way, God's way, that would be reflected in loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And if that would be our way, my friends, that would be a transforming faith. It would shape us and it would shape our culture. It would be the flourishing life. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they will see God. We would see God and then God would use us to help others see him as well. And that is the prayer that I have that God would move in.